0: Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 3 Never tell me the odds. Steve Bradbury was 29 in 2002. He was a short track speed skater, and he'd done pretty well for himself. World Championship relay medals in the early 90s, a growing reputation on the international stage. The Winter Olympics in 1994 gave with one hand and took away with the other. He won a bronze medal in the relay but he couldn't meddle in the individual sprint event for which he was one of the favourites. It must have been a tough time, carrying the weight of expectation into those games, and coming home with Australia's first ever winter medal, but it not being quite the one you wanted. And then it happened. In Montreal, later in 1994, he was in a crash on the ice, and another skater's blade sliced into his right thigh. His heart was pumping from the race, so he lost a lot of blood very quickly. All four of his quad muscles were sliced through. It took him 18 months to recover, but he was back on the ice for the 1998 Olympics. No medals this time, but at least he'd made it to the Games. And then, in 2000, it happened again. In trying to jump over a fallen skater in training, Steve clipped their helmet and went headfirst into the barriers. He broke his neck. Stephen Bradbury wouldn't quit. He was determined to come back for the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. If his luck could hold, he could maybe, just maybe, be fast enough to compete. In the early rounds of the 1,000 metre race, it looked as if he would be. But as the competition went on, it became clear that others were faster, stronger, tougher, his time perhaps had been and gone but his luck was only just starting and his strategy changed he knew he wouldn't be the fastest skater but he could be the cleanest in the quarterfinals one of the skaters ahead of him was disqualified so he made it through by default then in the semifinals, he hung back letting all of the other skaters fight it out miraculously they all fell and he made it into the final And in that final, the same thing happened again. His competitors, fighting fiercely for medals, all wiped out, leaving Stephen Bradbury to cross the line and take his and Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medal. I wanted to tell the story of Stephen Bradbury because it encapsulates so much that's interesting about sport. The sacrifice, the effort, the fine margins, the luck. And because sometimes the sporting heroes that we need aren't the obvious ones. Our heroes aren't always the best athletes or those with the strongest teams. Sometimes our heroes are the little guys, the long shots, the underdogs. So in amongst the biathlon chat today, I'll have a review of last week's races in Contiolati and some preview for this week's racing in Hochfilzen in Austria. I'm going to reflect on the outsiders, why we root for them, why they matter and perhaps why they're not always what they seem. But first, Biathlon. Uh, the season opener in Kontiolahti in Finland brought several surprises and reinforced some expectations. The first surprise would have been to any of you who tried to watch the biathlon on Eurosport. It turns out that here in the UK, Eurosport are no longer showing the live racing. All is not lost, however. You can tune in to live races or watch full replays at EurovisionSports.tv. That's EurovisionSports.tv. Look for the link to International Biathlon. Usually in the run-up to each race, uh, the main screen that pops up is is the live feed. Um, So seek it out there. Eurosport does still have some highlight programmes. The Eurovision Sports link, Eurovision Sports TV, also actually starts its broadcast earlier and runs longer. So you get more behind the scenes stuff both before and after the racing. As to the racing in Finland this last week, uh, so the week started with the men's individual 20 kilometer race. This was perhaps the most surprising of the men's races as many of the early favorites struggled with their shooting. Martin Poinsaloma of Sweden missed one shot but he had enough ski speed to take the race. The big surprises on the day were the athletes in second and third. Nicholas Hartweg of Switzerland. And David Zobel of Germany. They're what you would probably call mid-table athletes, not the best and not the worst, by athletes who are generally good but rarely great. However, on a day when shooting seemed to be the problem for so many, they both shot clear to create a very surprising top three. They're part of the reason for the focus on underdogs this week. Day 2 saw the women's individual race over 15 kilometers. This went much more with the form book, Sweden continued their good start to the season, they always start the season well, with Hannah Erberg taking the win. Norway's Ingrid Tandervold took second, and Italy's Lisa Vitozzi was third. The whole week for Lisa Vitozzi was sensational. She's someone who'd been at the top of her game a few years ago, but lost her way last year. Next episode, I'll be talking about the psychology of sport, and Lisa will be a story that we'll look at at in more detail. The relays were fairly predictable last week. Uh, Norway's men and Sweden's women took the honors. Saturday saw the two sprint races. This time it was the men's race that was predictable. Johannes tingis missed one shot but is so fast over the snow that it didn't matter. His teammate Storoholm Ligrid came second with the German Roman Rees in third, both shooting clear. At this point, I will acknowledge that in the last episode I said that the Germans don't start the season well and aren't so good away from home. And I got that wrong. Our underdogs, David Zobel and Nicholas Hartveg, both performed well again, with Zobel in ninth and Hartweg in 16th. The women's sprint race brought surprises. Here, the super fast Swedes just couldn't get it together on the shooting range, and it was the reliable shots who benefited. Lisa Teresa Hauser normally excels in longer race formats, but she was able to bring some good raw speed and accurate shooting to take the win. Ahead of that woman, Lisa Vitozzi again, with Sweden's most reliable by athlete, Lynn Person in 3rd. There was also a great result for Canada's Emma Lunder in 4th. The pursuits on Sunday were great fun. Honestly, if you have the chance to look for them online, they're worth watching, particularly the women's race. Remember, the starting order for the pursuit is based on the results of the sprint, and you're trying to chase down the people in front of you. It's head-to-head racing, so it brings out a different spirit. Definitely feels like something that the French team practice a lot, whilst others maybe focus more on against the clock racing. Anyway, the men's race came to a three way battle between Johannes Tingis Bo, Sturraholm Ligrid, both from Norway, and France's Emilien Jacqueline. They approached the last shoot with Bo well ahead. All he had to do was shoot four out of five and he'd likely win. But he missed two targets, headed off to do two laps of the penalty loop knowing that a clear shot from either of his rivals would propel them into the lead. Ligridge shot fast, but missed one. Jacqueline, alone on the range, knew that five out of five would give him the race, but he missed two. They skied the last lap in that order, and that's how it ended. The women's pursuit was a perfect example of how the race format works. As biathletes fell away at each shoot, the best shots moved towards the front of the race. A group of five biathletes traveling together, duking it out on the range. At the same time, Elvira Erberg of Sweden was skiing faster than anyone, pulling back huge chunks of time, but never quite making it to the front. In the end, it was the number 16 racer, that is the athlete who had finished 16th in the sprint, who shot clear and made it to the front. That was Julia Simon of France, who seemed absolutely on it in the head-to-head format. Dorothea Ovira of Italy was second, with that woman Lisa Vitozzi again in fourth, and Elvira Erberg splitting the Italians to come third. There was a fifth place for Emma Lunder marking a great weekend for her too. When you have names like Emma Lunder, David Zobel and Nicholas Hartweg appearing on the podium, you start to think about outsiders and underdogs and how a surprise result can be exciting and satisfying. That got me thinking about why we root for underdogs, hence the theme of this episode. Last time I talked about how a simple set of rules Can create endless complex narratives, and that's one of the fundamental reasons why sport and games are so compelling. In the men's individual race, we saw this. Over a hundred biathletes went off, there were favourites, and yet two out of the top three names on the podium would not have been expected to be there. In fact, most of us watching wouldn't even have recognized those names at the start of the race. So what is it that makes an underdog story so compelling? It might feel a little bit like schadenfreude happiness at someone else's misfortune we're happy that the favorite loses rather than the underdog wins but it's not quite that psychologically it's not enough that the favorite gets beaten it's the actual support for the underdog that is the motivator to us if that underdog has fewer resources or less money than the favorite even better think about the groundswell of support for leicester city when they were on track to win the english premiership a few years ago Public support came from rooting from the little guy, against not only the sporting odds, but the commercial ones too. Again, at a psychological level, we get more joy out of unexpected successes, and more pain from unexpected failures, than from things that we anticipate. When expectations are low, a positive outcome is a bonus, and we like a bonus. It makes us happier when the outsider wins. We also root for people who have gone against the odds or have struggled against external factors, especially if we feel we've gone through something similar ourselves. Ultimately, the act of witnessing an underdog story gives us hope. Literature gives us endless examples from Oliver Twist to Eliza Doolittle, from Frodo to Matilda. Brands use this stuff too, often in ways which are surreptitious. Think of the humble beginnings of massive tech companies in garages in California Admittedly, the garages of quite affluent people. All the origin stories of companies like Jack Daniels. It's all about starting somewhere humble and, through your wits or hard work, making a success of things. In many ways, it's also the American dream. Anyone can make it if they have a dream and work hard enough. And here's the downside of underdog stories. They don't necessarily change anything for anyone else. We want the little guy to win, because it suggests that any one of us can win too. But the little guy's victory doesn't necessarily change the humble circumstances of others. Oliver Twist's finding of family wealth and happiness doesn't mean that orphanages become kinder or that other children don't get caught in criminal gangs. One rags-to-riches story doesn't stop anyone else from being born into rags. The existence, say, of a black president or a female CEO doesn't change the structural inequalities that prevail in our societies. From a sporting perspective, too, underdogs aren't always what they seem. Stephen Bradbury was already an internationally recognised speed skater before his unexpected victory in the 2002 Olympics. David Zobel, who was consistently in the top 10 in Contiolati last week, had had one-off top 10 results last year when he got his shooting under control. In elite sports, the difference between number 1 and number 100 is often a matter of a few percentage points. Perhaps it's just that the underdogs aren't as visible to us as the favourite, Our media emphasises the winners, just as I've done, rather than the athletes that come mid-pack. One last thing on underdogs. It's a word I've used a lot in this episode and I was curious as to where it came from. It originally comes from the world of dog fighting and referred to a dog that had lost a fight, the underdog. The winning dog would be called the overdog, or more commonly the top dog. I'm also conscious that underdog might be a word that doesn't translate, Many languages instead use words for outsider, for example, ausensighter in German. Afrikaans uses balteped, which means outside horse, so perhaps not a dogfighting tradition. Bulgarian seems to translate underdog to preledvan chovek, which means a persecuted man. And if you look at Croatian, Albanian and Italian, there isn't an obvious corollary. Their words are Humbus, gubutnik or pedente, which all mean loser. Perhaps there isn't as much belief in underdog stories in those cultures, but maybe that's a story for another day. So back to biathlon. This week sees a more normal schedule of racing. Uh, Contiolati was unusual in that racing started on a Tuesday. It's more typical that racing takes place from Thursday to Sunday, so you'll note that the Twitter feed for this podcast certainly will be a little quieter this week. And this week we are heading to Austria and the biathlon circuit at Hochfilzen. The village of Hockvilsen hosted its first, first Biathlon World Cup events in 1978 and has played host to events every year since 1986. Now if you thought Kontiolahti in Finland was a small place, wait till you see Hockvilsen. It's a village of just over a thousand residents in the Tyrol. However, since 1875 it's also been a training area for the Austrian military, giving us those military connections once again. It's described as the snowiest village in the Tyrol, uh, with local cross-country trails and connections into the Kitspool ski area for those who like to go downhills a little faster. Continuing in our underdog vein, one of the best Hockfields Biathlon stories came in 2017, when the town hosted the World Championships. Now, for clarity, the World Cup runs through the season, but the World Championships is the big event like an annual Olympics. So back in 2017, the men's individual race, remember, 20 kilometres, four shoots, was expected to go to one of the big favourites. Martin Fourcade, who was dominant in the sport at that time, headed off but missed two shots and settled for third. Czech skier Andrei Morović shot clear and was holding the lead until athlete number 100 came along. Now, as a reminder, uh, numbering in biathlon is, is all about groups, groups, um, and the favourites for a race tend to all ski together either in the first group if the conditions are really good or in the second group if, if the coaches believe the conditions are going to improve. So athlete number 100 is pretty much someone where there's very very low expectation of them doing anything. In this race athlete number 100 was Lowell Bailey, a 35 year old from the United States. Now in fairness to Bailey he had had some top 10 finishes and performed well earlier in those world championships. But he was coming to the end of his career. He himself said he was considering retiring to become a cattle farmer back at home. So putting it all together, with a fast ski and a clean shoot, was something not many people expected. Perhaps not even him. In his own words, after the race, Bailey said, I knew that if there was ever a point where every second mattered, It's directly after you've gone 20 for 20 in an individual. So I knew that those four kilometres were going to be the deciding factor, and I knew it was going to be a matter of seconds. It was just that rush of adrenaline. I worked so hard to get to this point. I need to do this. Every 100 metres, it was a sprint. Every 100 metres was go as hard as you can for this 100 metres, and then when you get to the end of that 100 metres, go as fast as you can and just keep doing that. I thought the finish line was never going to come. I was just like, I don't know how much longer I can do this because the finish line is just not showing up. Bailey was a great outsider, but the ingredients were always there. Some weeks he was fast enough, some weeks he was accurate enough. Putting it all together gave him a chance. Other people's failures helped, and that's a huge part of biathlon. Skis that had been prepared to perfection gave him the confidence, and understanding his own body got him to the line. Hockfieldsum had some big hills, which Bailey always struggled with, so he had a plan of how to conserve energy as best he could, gain ground on the easier sections, but have enough left in the tank to get up the hills without jeopardising his race. Much as Stephen Bradbury had a strategy which enabled him to win Olympic gold, so did Lowell Bailey. That combination of talent, athletic ability, training and strategy helped lift these two to unexpected, but not entirely impossible victories. So who should we look out for this week? Well, the schedule um, starts on Thursday this week, so Thursday the 8th of December, with the women's sprint race, just after one o'clock UK time. Then on Friday, we have the men's sprint race at 12.45. Saturday, we have a double header. We have the women's pursuit in the morning, 10.30, followed by the men's relay at 12.40. And then we flip for Sunday. We start with the women's relay at 10.30, followed by the men's pursuit at 1.15. The sprints, as we know, favor the speedsters, so those who are fastest over the snow and can be forgiven a few shooting mistakes. Expect again the Öberg sisters, Hannah and Elvira from Sweden, and the two Italians, Lisa Vitozzi and Dorothy Vera, to show well. I'd also expect Denise hermann Wick of Germany to be there or thereabouts. In the men's sprint, it's hard to see anyone challenging Johannes tingis bow. But French favourite, Quentin Fillon seemed not quite in form last week, and he may well improve this week. I guess I should pick some underdogs. So let's pick some youngsters in the women's races. Anna Wiedel and Sophia Schneider of Germany. Perhaps Sophie Chauveau and Lou Jamonot of France. And on the men's side, how about Austrian veteran Simon Eder, and New Zealand's upstart Campbell Wright. Campbell Wright was a joy to watch last week, mostly because he smiled his way through the entire experience, which takes a strength of will that not many people would have. And finally, Stephen Bradbury retired from speed skating after winning his Olympic gold. He worked in TV commentary for a while, tried his hands at motorsports, with some success in Australia, and reality TV. Um, because you can't keep a good man down, he was most recently in the news earlier this year for helping to rescue four teenage girls who fell into difficulty in riptides while surfing. What a guy. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information at skishuterepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at Ski Shoot repeat, We're also on Instagram, Ski Shoot repeat. Please do get in touch uh, through Twitter to tell me what's right and what's wrong. This podcast, as I've said before, is more about love than knowledge, so I do expect to be told uh, when I get things wrong um, and how to improve things. Uh, let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be back next week to review the racing in Hockfilsen. Look forward to the next week of racing and have a discussion and a chat about uh, psychology in sports. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.